Fidget spinners is a bad one. Testicles. Why is this so low? I don't know. This is your headphone monitor thingy. Testicles. Testies. Must you? I must. Testy, testy, testicles. It works. I checked it already. I like saying testicles. (laughs) I know. For some reason, you say it over and over at the beginning of the show, which alienates all of the women that want to listen to the show. All five or six of them. Women can relate to testicles. I mean, it's just a part of the human Well, they can relate to them, but perhaps they choose not to over their coffee in the morning when they're driving to work. Is that when we're being listened to? That feels like a violation. If anywhere. Doesn't that feel like a violation? We're being listened to, like almost like it's against but, our will. But it's but that's what we're that's what we want. That is what we we're. want. I mean, that's what I thought <laughs> I wanted until now. People are listening, and so not sure well, if I wanted. Not only this. are they listening, but they're engaging. <laughs> they're putting the gay back in engagement. Mm. Um, and now I'm going to have to make me cut out the gay thing. No, <laughs> that's just something my brother would say. Um, and we're back. Okay. Welcome to Recovery in the Middle Ages, the podcast about two middle-aged suburban dads and their pursuit of life, love, and recovery. I'm Nat. And I'm still Mike. And boy, do I have a show for you. Me? We both have a show for them. That's so why, why is it I? It was well, I last week, too. The reason I said I is because you've rejected the saying. Well, I'm so. not going to say it with you, but well, it's still the we. It is, but I thought you were saying, no, I maybe Nat has a show for you, but I don't. Is that what you're saying? Or you just don't like you celebrating that we both have a show for them? I celebrate it. I just think it's a little fruity for both of us to say it at the same time. I mean, it's extremely fruity. That's why I love it. Uh, okay. um, today on RMA, Nat finally joins the gym, and Mike's dog gets a bad haircut, and we discuss Alex Gibney's Crime of the Century on HBO, featuring the great Patrick Radden Keefe, author of the new expose on the Sackler family called Empire of Pain. Ha. Yeah, Thought I'd I, catch you on that thank one. Thank you, you did. <laughs> uh, and today, on a very special edition of RMA. Yes, visit us on... Uh, <laughs> what? I just It's funny you put my name in parentheses. Well, I, I did that for me more than you. Okay. Visit so us at middleagesrecovery.com. Uh, Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Facebook, Instagram, Spotify, Amazon... <laughs> I have to read all of these every week. No, you don't. Join the discussion on our exclusive and private Facebook group. And if you need to talk, don't hesitate to reach out to us on social media. And don't be alarmed by the fact that we have it set to automatically uh, pop you our latest episode to listen to because we'll still answer. Uh, Great reviews will be read on the show. Open the Apple Podcasts app if that's where you listen. Search for the show. Click on the Drunk Monk. Scroll down to where it says reviews and click write us a review. Give us five stars and tell us. Tell us how much uh, we mean to you. Um, we have a review. We have a review. How about I'll read the review? You read the review. You can read the story that someone gave us. Okay. Let's do that. That's good. So this comes from, it came on Saturday, uh, and the name of the user is Dish Soap Bar. Do people wash their dishes with a bar of soap? That would be weird. It would. Maybe they used to. I feel like yeah. my parents did, but like one of those old brown soap. Remember the brown soap that... Used to use to get off poison ivy. They use that for everything. <laughs> they use it on the dishes. Everything. I'm telling you, everything. <laughs> that bar of brown soap. It lasted 30 years. It's wow. still there. Yeah, it's, okay. it's a sliver. So uh, what explains dish, a lot. Which yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, dish soap bar says 
uh, entertaining and insightful. Five mm. stars. The podcast is easy to listen to, and it's fun <laughs> to hear the middle-aged dad humor. Easy to listen to. <laughs> Just press the button. Press the button. <laughs> Mike and Nat often have different opinions, but it's nice to hear them discuss it in a respectful manner. True. They provide many options and resources for recovery. Also true. I feel they are genuine and want to help others who are struggling. Good work. Thank you so much, Dish Soap Bar. Thanks. Yeah, it's we- good that you feel that we are genuine because- we have to work. We have to work at it. Yeah, I mean, no, it's we're hard. seriously, we're very genuine. It's you know, and as far as us disagreeing, I think maybe both of us. I won't speak for Mike. Are coming from a place of investigation. So uh, a lot of what we're talking about is an investigation, and we're just doing it out loud, and we're recording it. Right. Yeah, just a couple of guys bullshitting about things that we don't know much about. Yeah, it's kind of no, like, no. Actually, we do know a lot about this. What What I thought about the show before we made really? it, I was thinking of, and some of you out there will relate to this. Uh, when I was in outpatient therapy or AA meetings or uh, inpatient, it's the conversations you have with the people you are with there outside of the meeting. Right. The discussions we had, you know, when it was mealtime at inpatient rehab or after the AA meeting and you're at the diner, Mm -hmm. these conversations, those are the the real stuff outside of, you know, the structure of a meeting. And, um, yeah, I think we're trying to, we're capturing that. Um, we don't need the meeting. We're just having the conversation. New merch is available. Yeah. Go to middleagesrecovery.com and click on the shopping cart. And it's that easy to support your favorite show. Yeah, and we're currently in the middle of working out some new merchandise um, contracts with yeah. some suppliers. Yes. So, uh, it's a large contract. Yes. Uh, Our legal team is negotiating. Right. Uh, also, you can tell us your story by logging into middleagesrecovery.com. Scroll down and fill out the Your Story form. Where and story go? you can hear your review for a story read on the air. So... Nat recently replaced uh, the printer with a new printer, but none of the printers seem to work. They're very mercurial, would be the word I would use. Why does it say paper jam when there is no paper jam? Uh, Okay, so I have a story from Colleen. Um, I thought I would share my story as I, too, am a... I'm sorry. As I, too, am a middle-aged woman in recovery. Just like us. Just like, just like, <laughs> just me, and like me and Mike. Uh, We're also okay. middle-aged women in sorry, recovery. Sorry, Colleen. That, I'm not to take it away. It's not to detract. It's, uh, it's just when we read that, we both got a chuckle out of it because we, too, are middle-aged women in recovery. <laughs> uh, my dad went into treatment for alcoholism in his 50s, the treatment program called in the family and we were forced to sit in an open A meeting. They divided the family on one side of the room and the alcoholics and addicts on the other side. And then they um, handed out boxing gloves and they proceeded to fight. No, uh, I could see my dad across the room and he looked great. The female speaker began to share her story and the floodgates opened up. I could not stop crying. All the Al-Anon members tried to console me and gave me their phone numbers. I did not have the courage to say I belonged on the other side of the room with the addicts and the alcoholics. I drove home in a fury and decided that night I was going to get clean. I packed up all my weed, pipes, bongs, papers, all the other drugs were gone, uh, and gave everything to my using buddy. I proceeded to go through a withdrawal of some sort, missing the buzz, missing the substances that took away the pain. I was married at the time, and whenever my husband made me mad, I disappeared again. But miraculously, I managed to come back and try again. This behavior continued over and over for a year. I was about to turn 30. I knew I had used throughout my teens and 20s, and that if I didn't get help, I was about to launch a 10-year run through my 30s, and thus I called an outpatient treatment center. I picked out an outpatient center so I could hide what was going on for my extended family. I was not about to disappear in an inpatient lockdown treatment center for 30 days. After all, I was a mom too. 
The counselor told me I had to go to 12-step meetings. I was devastated. What if someone recognized me? All I knew for sure is my attempts to get clean on my own did not work. I was lucky enough to have a drug counselor meet me at my first meeting. Fast forward to 33 years later. Wow. 33 years. And I have been Jeez. basically happy, joyous, and free for the most part. The best part has been waking up and not feeling sick. Now I wake up wondering if I can manage the day ahead of me, but I'm not sick. The most surprising part has been my personal success. All the energy I put into using was transferred to starting and running a successful business with a nationwide presence. Has it been easy? Heck no. I've faced a son diagnosed with cancer at the age of seven, a divorce, and my beloved sister's passing, all while staying clean. Has it been worth it? A thousand times yes. Thank you for your great podcast about recovering in the Middle Ages. Sincerely, Colleen. Thank you so much, Colleen. And um, That's a great story, and I can only imagine... Um, the transformative, tra- <laughs> great, the transformative power of long-term sobriety. I mean, 33 years is pretty, is a pretty amazing period of time. Um, and the fact that it's present enough in your mind to sit down and write out your story and send it to us and still keep, uh, your sobriety and your recovery at the top of your list is pretty amazing. Yeah. I think. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's a testament, uh, to, to the power, as you said. And um, thank you so much for sending in that story. Sorry we got the giggles at the beginning. Uh, very, uh, very appreciative of that. Um, so, as you did we say, tell us your story. Yeah, we right. did. There's a forum on... We, we did, and then we read one. Yeah. That's how that went down. I'm, I'm all like discombobulated. <laughs> I was on a roll. We were like cooking, and then... You've got a triple shot dark roast Starbucks drink energy drink here. Extra strength. I haven't drank it, really. How many su- superlatives can they put on one can? Extra, triple, double, super. <laughs> Take a nice long pull yeah. off More. your... Triple extra strength, three two hundred and twenty five milligrams of caffeine. <laughs> so I wanted That's to. Good. I wanted to start off our life update today with. Um, I've been listening to, amongst other things, Charles Bukowski's. Uh, I think it's called <laughs> "Notes from a Dirty Old Man," and um, it's really like a series of letters that he wrote for. Um, uh, what was it? The Village Voice or something. Or uh, one of those magazines. Was it Evergreen? Maybe. It was one of those hippie ma- uh, hippie magazines in they the late sixties. They call it 60s. the Free Press. Yeah. Um, he was writing. Um, and uh, and so it's a collection of his work, and it's it's uh, known to be some of his best stuff. But it's it's very disjointed and almost stream of consciousness, like a lot of his things. Mostly because he was drunk all the time. Drunk, uh, yeah. <laughs> but there's a, there's nuggets of wisdom. It's why he's famous and why people read him. And um, and so this stuck out to me. He said, "An intellectual man is a man." No, no, no. Start over. An intellectual is a man who says a simple thing in a difficult way. And an artist is a man who says a difficult thing in a simple way. Hmm. Could also be a woman, but he says it's a man. But I, I love, um, love the way you put that. It just stuck out to me. His famous quote, of course, is, um, it's not that I don't like people. I just feel better when they're not around. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, he, and, uh, a bit of a misanthrope, but uh, certainly a keen observer of the human condition, despite his decades-long uh, tango with bottle yeah i'd like to do some a show on it um because uh, mike and i actually have differing views on whether you know or we have some good stuff to talk about with regards to bukowski but um he was my favorite author when i was 20 you know between 17 and 21 um right but, but you've matured and your perspective is different well and, he's still a good writer don't get me wrong but you know i i'm perhaps not as enthused about reading about the advocacy of of drinking as a palliative well, to to depression 
That's that's what's so great about art, though. I mean, you you, you see, call that art. I call it art. You see the statue of David as a child, and then you see it as an adult. Your mm. life experiences filter how you experience art. No question about so, it. So, um, but I think like we I said, get bogged down in the definition of whether or not uh, the dirty old man writing about his drinking experiences. Uh, and influencing young people to do the same. It's the <laughs> way he does okay. it, not that. You know what? You're right. It. We should hold that for another yeah, episode. Yeah, that would be a really good okay. discussion because I don't think we agree. Yeah. Um, I had a really great week. Um, I joined a gym finally. Excellent. I know I've been talking about it and I've gotten so skinny. And um, Which gym did you pick? I picked Equinox. Oh, the fancy gym with I all the MILFs. Know, I, yes. <laughs> I wasn't obviously not going for the MILFs. Of course not. It's not me. I go there and I'm. I liked it. I just wanted to feel good again. I used to go like the way I used to feel going to the gym. I used to feel like you go somewhere that's specifically for wellness, you know, mm-hmm. kind of like it would be cool to go to like a Buddhist temple to meditate. Like you can right. meditate in your car, but when you go to, right. uh, not while you're driving, but yeah, hopefully. you go to a place like that, you're surrounded by people who are trying to be, be healthy and um, there wasn't that many mills. Like I only went for like 40 minutes, but the guy, he didn't even pitch me that hard. Um, he was just kind of showing, it was beautiful. And I'm like, I'm, I was ready to work out that day because i am been so anxious to get back to the gym and put on a few pounds of muscle and, um, and just feel, feel good and feel strong. And so, you know, as soon as I got done, the place is beautiful. Um, they have something called a Pilates machine. Have you ever seen one of these? Yeah, it's, it's called a reformer, which it's, is uh, really sort of a interesting name yeah, for a piece of exercise equipment. It, it, it will looks, reform you. It looks like something that they might have had at Creedmoor, yeah. you right. know, where the sacrifice started. You, in and, uh, you get strapped in and electrocuted and tortured. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting, and I get one free session there. And um, you get a, a free I get one. reformer. I get one. Okay. Just to try it out. And the guy's like, I know it looks like a medieval torture device, but it's great. I'm like, Mm. Let me know how that goes. Yeah, I've uh, I've looked at that thing. It's pretty cool. But it intimidates me. And well, I, you plus know, all the people that take Pilates are dancers and like super me. fit people. Right, <laughs> uh, uh, so that always sends me running off to the cardio area. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, but it's a beautiful gym, and I plan on you know you have access to all of these classes and stuff like that. I'm going to be doing an ad for Equinox, but <laughs> on top of it, they have a fully realized like app that. Like the Peloton thing, like all that, it's got stuff you can take with you, like mm. workouts, and it's really cool, man. Like everything that you don't even need the gym if you have this app that they, you know, it's like all those. Mention other ones. recovery in the Middle Ages and get twenty percent off your first month. Yeah, I'm no, working I'm on it. I told the salesman I would, you know, send people from my shop, you know, yeah. and uh, they're pretty good. They, they would give you, they give you money for a referral. But in any case, I'm feeling good. I've been there once. And uh, I'm very sore. <laughs> the trick is to go back. I know. Yeah. I went once, signed up, but I will go back. How's your bench press? Uh, <laughs> so I hadn't bench pressed in a very long time. I've been doing push-ups. I've been doing maybe like 200 push-ups a day about. Strangely, they're slightly different muscles. Which? The bench pressing and the push-ups. You dep- yeah. The push-up is, does some of your triceps and depending on how wide your arms are is the part of the chest. The bench press it should be similar, but it's a different motion a little bit. And uh, it's uh, Yeah, anyway, painful. sorry. I don't want to turn this into the Joe Rogan show. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, does, I do, but yeah, not, not, not about that. So in any case, I, I warmed up with the bar, which is, I think, 45 pounds. And um, I put on two 45s and was able to bench press 135. 
uh, for reps of six or eight. Yeah. Oops, wrong. I know. <laughs> yeah, that's how Sorry, it felt. that was the wrong one. But <laughs> no, that <laughs> was the wrong one too. <laughs> Listen, Shit. I know it's not a lot, and it looks pretty wimpy. But I used to do a lot more. Hey, that's pretty good, man. I don't think I can do that. Of course, I'm. You know, I'm the downward slide but, into the grave, but you, you know, you have a <laughs> hey, few more years. Hey, work out with me, you know. Um, but I'm planning on getting that back up to a, a respectable weight, and, and uh, it felt good. It just felt good. I don't want to so, talk about the gym too much. Meanwhile, more. while you're, you know, joining new gyms, I'm trotting off to the cardiologist because, uh, you know, <laughs> I've weird skipped uh, heartbeats, so I figured it was time to get a tune-up. Did your there. Apple Watch tell you you have a heartbeat? You know, it skip. didn't. I have it set, and it just didn't, didn't. Don't get me started on Apple. I think their products are trash lately. Oh, but, really? Yeah. Yeah. I just bought some Apple. Apple the stock. little fucking, so, uh, um, what do you call those things? The earbuds? Yeah, yeah. Like if you, I, I've I love I've gone, those. I hate them. I, I wear them constantly. I, I have them in, I'm on a phone call, I adjust it in my uh, ear, it hangs up. Yeah, that's And annoying. then if I touch the other ear, it goes from noise canceling to no noise canceling. Wait, and what do you have, the Apple Pro ones? Yeah. Oh, I don't have those. They're garbage. I like the other ones. Yeah? Better. Yeah. I mean, I get a lot, I, I wear those because as you guys know, I listen to books and, um, uh, I listen to books and podcasts constantly, so I'm always with an earbud in. Just, yeah. Usually I do one. Even when I'm sleeping, I listen to... I do my paranormal shows That's and my ancient uh, civilization podcast. I do that to go to sleep. And then in the morning... It's and do you have lucid dreams about aliens? I really don't. Yeah. I only really sleep a solid five or six hours right. each night. And I think it's a symptom of being old because I remember that my grandfather used to sleep four hours and he was up at 5 a.m. watching reruns of like Jag or something. Know. Maybe. I'm a morning person, so who knows? Um, so anyway, I go to this cardiologist and he puts me on the, uh, he puts me on the treadmill, right? Have you ever had a stress test? I've never had a stress test, it's, except it's every day of my life. I mean, I have two kids and I've been married Dif 15 years. Different kind of stress. So they first of all, they had to shave a big V in my chest to get rid of my uh, chest hair, <laughs> dry with no shaving cream. So that was entertaining. Uh, then they put you on the treadmill and every few minutes they raise the elevation and the speed. Oh God. Since I'm a runner uh, and he needed to get my heart rate up to like 148 or something. But since I'm a runner, uh, it took... Long time, almost well, fifteen you, minutes. For you run my like, heart rate to get up. Your freaking Strava stuff, because I'm now that I'm trying to run. Yeah, and I say that trying to run, and then I look at Mike's stuff, and it's like, oh, it's six miles every single morning. You're insane. Yeah, that's it keeps me. That's my thing, man. It keeps me. That's what keeps me, uh, you know, level on the level. Um, so anyway, come to the end of the the stress test. Everything's fine. My doctor tells me that I should be eating more like a caveman. So apparently the cardiologists paleo. have adopted the paleo diet, which I, Can I, you explain I find what very is? weird. What is the paleo diet? It's sort of diet? like a modified Atkins. I mean, it's no processed food, very little sugar, very low in carb, but not no carb. Uh, and and he, said, he, he said it's okay to eat some carbs, uh, you know. And especially since as a runner, I tried to become fat at... We should have another podcast on physical fitness. That'd I tried be to become fat adapted by eating no carbs, but I couldn't do it. So uh, I just found that interesting. But I, anyway, the heart's healthy. I'm fine. Yes. Uh, it's great. So, so happy. Thank you. Don't have to do the show from hospice or something. I um, <laughs> That was dark. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, shit. Not, not within the next few months no. anyway. <laughs> uh, 
So, okay, the next thing on here is my dog's haircut. See, we're really, we scraping the bottom of the barrel for life shit this week. Um, uh, it's just, it was so extreme, and I'm going to, I'm going to post a picture, a before and after picture. Yeah. On the, oh, I uh, saw it. You were yeah. all upset. I was. I was fucking livid. Because um, we have like one of those annoying, fluffy, little white dogs with the curly hair who trots around and looks and, really cute, but it's just a nasty a son of a bitch. And the pug, and, oh, the pug is very And that nice. thing comes after me, man. Which one? The both, both. Whenever I walk in your house, <laughs> if they could get over that that gate, yeah. who knows what they would do? I mean, <laughs> the way that they jump at the gate, like they are, they want blood. I think That's they've taken like. Noah down a couple of times. Yeah, when he's I guess. Over. Uh, anyway, so but she's like this cute little fluffy dog. Looks a little like an Ewok from from Star Wars. And <laughs> I bring her to this new grooming place because the old people in town here don't want to talk to me anymore because I've blown off too many appointments. And and I figure you know, call and remind me like you're a doctor's right. office, right? But they never do and I always forget and then so finally they froze me out I take them to the next town over I bring her in I'm like uh, a little on the shorter side and they give me back this thing that looks like a fucking chupacabra <laughs> like a yeah, baby goat I mean it's uh, I, I saw your picture and I said I think they're both lovely yeah, and which, cute. Damning by faint praise. That yeah. should be in the dictionary <laughs> next to that. <laughs> I was saying, I like that you should love this dog no matter how. I do love the dog. The dog looks. It's just, it was, just, it was frightening. And to wake up, she sleeps in her bed, and to wake up at night and see that thing sleeping next to you, it's like, fuck. <laughs> we should use that weekend weird. It'll be good. I yeah. woke up and I saw an Ooga Booga or Noingo Boingo. What was the last one? What? The, oh, last, the Ogo Bogo? The Ogo or Bingo? Or? Yeah. <laughs> Oingo Boingo. This, yeah. You know, those things are going to get happening with more increasing frequency as weed is legalized in more places. You realize that? Yeah. I think it'll be exciting. Yeah. Um, so your dog got a bad haircut and you hate it because it doesn't look the way you want it to. Uh, <laughs> is that what this is? Going right for the jugular, huh? <laughs> is this a control issue for you? The, you're like, the one thing I can control in my life right now is what the dog looks like. Well, I posted on Facebook and I get all these people who are like... The comment section did not go as I was expecting. It, it didn't. What are people saying? Like, people were all how like, dare you? You know, they're all like, she looks great. Don't worry about it. You know, it's this, that, and the other thing. I'm like, well, okay, you don't have to live with it. <laughs> you don't have to live with this thing yeah. sitting in your chest. No, I, you know, what am I going to do? And my wife was like, you know, when you picked him up, I hope you gave him like a, a, an earful. And I was like, I was just too shocked. I just took the dog and, and uh, yeah. well, it was funny. I, uh, I make, uh, before I saw her, I made the next appointment. And I was like, I don't know, usually every four weeks. And she goes, let's go six. And yeah. I'm like, I wonder why. And then the dog comes out and she looks at the dog. She goes, maybe eight. Oh, <laughs> man. That, that, clearly, it sounds like something went horribly wrong. Yeah, so I think they knew. Well, anyway, whatever. Well, so much for the for the dog. And um, I've noticed that you've been on a boat lately. I don't know if we've talked about this, but Mike has a boat. It's a small boat. It's a bay boat. It's big enough to have fun. Yeah, I just put it in the water and see what happens. I can't get anybody to go on it, though. We, you haven't invited me yet. I invited your son, but he well, was busy. Right. He was doing something. We'll do the boat. Yeah, you guys can do the boat. Or, or even better, yeah. is you and me, corporate meeting on the boat. Yeah, anytime. We got to get like, away from the, from the mainland to have these conversations. Cause <laughs> it should be held in international waters. It should. So we're planning our financial crimes. <laughs> uh, but that's cool. I mean, the summer is going to be the summer of boating, right? Well, and this is somewhat relevant to uh, the podcast because uh, a few years ago in our town, they decided to, there was no place on the waterfront for anybody to get a bite to eat or something to drink. So they created a new um, little, nice little restaurant slash 
bar. Uh, I'll it's call the it only one. It's too. the only it's one. Because right. this is like a beach town. I know. Uh, I'm gonna got it. I'm gonna call it Hooper Scruff. Hooper Scruff, which, which is not what it's really called, although it rhymes with Hooper Scruff. And my friend Mikey Clams works there. He does the clams. Oh, does he, he's, yeah. uh, he's oh you a, met Mike. He's a shucker. Yeah, there. he's a, what the shuck is the name of his company. No, I told him to do that, but he, he should. What the shuck is mother great. shucker. Would mother shucker. What the shuck. Um, but so they have a Facebook presence. So and you know I'm thinking well, it might be nice when I'm bringing the 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 boat in for the day to like pop in there and grab a bite to eat and something to drink. And I pull up their menu. And first of all, when you click on the food, it says food menu. You click on that. It brings you to the bar menu, <laughs> which kind of tells you already where this is going. Yeah, yeah, and and then you look at the bar menu and there's nothing non-alcohol. It's three pages. Really? And every single thing on there is a, is a booze drink. Every single thing. There's no, they don't even put soda on there. Well, and I, you yeah. know, I was thinking I like, I was, I had my itchy Facebook fingers and I was all ready to be like, you, you know, stop you know people that don't drink also like to spend money and sit and, and, and watch out. sunsets and things. Yeah, you we know? like sunsets too. Yeah. But um, I was like, you know what? It's pointless because if, if somebody who's that into booze, like that's just going to like roll yeah, right, right over. And they're going to be like, who gives a fuck? You know, yeah, I sell enough vodka. At- I don't need to, you know, you don't- throw a couple of uh, Heineken double zeros in the cooler. What's for this the markup clown? on a bottle of water? You know, like <laughs> it could be like $6 if you're at Yankee stadium. The thing that irritates me though, is when the first year it started, it was much more of a family scene over there. Yes. Like, I people remember going, they had like, um, now it's dark. Yeah, they had um, horseshoes and yep. and cornhole in the parking all, lot. Yeah, and all that stuff. Cornhole in the parking lot. It's yes. the best part of the summer. The latches grease uh, through the back. Yeah. But um, but the last couple times I've been down there last year, it was just mostly kids in college, just absolutely shit faced, and nobody walks there. Every single person has yeah. to drive a car, you know, to there. And yeah. I'm thinking, like, it is a cool place. Like I went, we went when it first opened, and the owner is, um, you know, as a business owner in town, we, you know, we sort of have that. You know, we know yeah, each other yeah, yeah. because of the chamber and everything. And nice guy. And he also knew my wife. Uh, they were friends in high school or he was a f- something like that. In any case, great guy. So we went a couple times when they first opened just to support it. And it was really cool. And I, it's right on the water. And the I was there for the food and then my friend Mike doing the clams. And um, it didn't seem out of whack, drinky. Like it was mostly families, like you said. Mm-hmm. But you probably went, I mean, all the kids right now are back from college. Right. So they're probably saying, hey, I'm 21 or not 21 and yeah, time I, to party. And all the old people, there's enough drunk, surly old people that would go there and throw them out, you know? Things that I didn't know about boating before I started boating last year were one, uh, there are an awful lot of Trump supporters who have boats. They love That's boats. number one because yep. they have their boat flotillas and the, and the flags and everything. Right. And I'm like, whatever, you know, do, do your thing, man. Yeah. Uh, but alcohol and Go boating to- seem to go together hand in glove, which is somewhat surprising to me since you're not allowed to drive a boat when you're intoxicated. Well, yeah, but it actually makes sense because, uh, you know, a captain of one of these boats, I mean, they're willing to go down with the ship. Yeah. Just like a good supporter would. <laughs> Oh, I see. Yes, you I see, see what I've done there. that that needle. Yes, yeah. it's difficult. I got it. That one didn't land so it. good, no, though. I'm sorry. Sorry. I'm sorry I didn't get it, because so, I should have gotten it. It was good. Yeah, it was sort good. of. And uh, so so how do you, um, so it's an interesting group of people. Now, do you fraternize with these people, if I could put it more pretentiously? I mean, no, I just, <laughs> I take the kids fishing on the boat, yeah. and I cruise around in the harbor with whoever wants to go on the boat with me. Except and, for me. You're, listen. 
you are. Uh, I know. I don't. Your schedule is a bit tight. You know. I, I mean, you can go. I, I'll I take know. you guys out whenever. It's going to take an act of Congress to get me the time to go just have fun on a boat. It sucks. But I mean, what's nice is we only we can go out for like two hours. It's, it doesn't have to be the whole. What night. about peeing? Do you just have a jar or do you jump in the water? <sighs> That's, well, you can't jump in the water now because it's too cold. I forgot about that. And I haven't been boating since I had to urinate every 35 minutes. I have a, um, I have a, uh, I have a portable toilet, but it's too big. You can't share it probably. I, no. <laughs> it's, <laughs> what the hell is this? Thanks, Frank. Frank Zappa, hey, uh, ladies uh, and um, The great. You can pee off the boat, on the boat, in the boat. <laughs> yeah. It's just yeah. the, 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 yeah. the bay is our toilet. Um, <laughs> hey, I had some adventures. Yeah, I had an adventure. Um, I went to go, this is it called what, Adventures in Not Drinking. Mm. So my son was at a kid's house. With the, it was like a birthday party. Uh, at um, at a house locally, nice, beautiful home. I mean, oh, is my this God, the yeah, kid who's po- yeah, that, like, that place is crazy. It's like in the woods. There's like two acres. There's a zip line, a pool, yeah. trampoline, and they are the nicest fucking people, mm-hmm. man. They are so nice. Uh, in any case, uh, and here's here's an example of how nice they are. You know, it was party, and there was all the adults are picking kids up. And, um, of course, the host, being magnanimous as he is, uh, offers everybody, oh, what do you need to drink? And get you a beer, get mm. you this, get you that. So it came my turn to be offered something. What can I get you? You want, you want a beer? I said, uh, water would be great, thanks. Mm-hmm. Um, moment over, he went, gave me a bottle of water. Right. That was it. I took my water. Because this was like 3 o'clock on a Tuesday, right? But everybody else was <laughs> drinking, you know. Oh, yeah. People tend to do yeah. that here. So, um, and everywhere. Yeah, but maybe, oh, maybe that's why he didn't bat an eye. But I think it's just, we put so much pressure on ourselves. Like, what are they going to think if I don't drink? Or mm-hmm. what will they say? Nobody cares. They're just happy to not, you know, have one less beer in their fridge. After we recorded last week, we were talking a little bit about this. And you laid out your um, your go-to phrase if someone was getting like a little insistent. Yeah. So I had a, the, the one that seems to work the most is if someone is really like, and this happened with one of my neighbors, uh, like maybe five, four, four years ago or so. And, um, you could tell he was like, he just couldn't understand why I was turning down to drink, right? which I've been there too. When people didn't drink, like when we on our honeymoon, we met a couple and the guy was just like, I don't drink. And it drove me insane. <laughs> like it did. I would talk about it, you know, at night we were on a cruise ship and it, it drove me nuts. What, what's wrong with him? Is he like religious? Is he an uh, <laughs> AA? But you know, I couldn't get a straight was he answer. still fun? Did you still have fun with them? Yeah, we had a lot of fun. Okay. Actually, I love those two. Uh, we still yeah. talk to them. They're in Georgia, but in any case, so I understand it anyway. So this was a good friend of ours, one of our neighbors who you met. Uh, and um, he was pretty much like, cause we were at his house and it was like a big thing, this drinking, you have to, we're all going to have a shot of whatever. And you know, it was a, a communal, like, Hey, we're together. We're neighbors. We're, we're going to drink together. Mm-hmm. And so I was, I had to refuse. And I was like, I, I can't, man. I, no, thank you. You know? And he's like, I, why won't you drink? Why? And all I had to do one time was say, I used to drink too much and now I don't drink at all. Yeah. And he goes, you could see the wheels turning. <laughs> he looks up to, th- he's thinking and he goes, Oh, 
I got it. I'm like, yep. And then we just moved on. Now, that was an opportunity for me to tell him a little more mm-hmm. and maybe feel him out. Maybe he's interested. Or what I did was I didn't want to talk about it. So I backed off. But now, if from there he's asking more questions, I'm happy to do it. Right. But I mean, that Typically, really Typically, though, sh- if shut those it down. questions are coming, they're, they're because he's looking at in the mirror a little bit and yeah. trying to decide whether or not whatever magic has infected you and made you able to stop drinking could possibly be contagious and, and flip over to him. Now, interesting you say that. I'm just having a breakthrough. Now, I just told you that I was, uh, it drove me nuts that that guy wasn't drinking on our honeymoon. Right. I bet you it drove me so nuts because I was looking inside yeah. going, what about me? What can I do that? Or is or it just made me curious, like, oh, you can be a young person even on your honeymoon and turn right. on your drinks and still have fun and buy. He bought us a bottle of wine for the table, didn't have any. It was was like, his wife drinking? Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting. And I'm glad we touched upon this because I got any grace from This Naked Mind sends out uh, these email missives every week. And I usually. Um, like, okay, you know, it's she's just keeping the marketing going, whatever, for stuff. Um, but this one kind of resonated because she started talking about how uh, now that all these restrictions are lifted and everything's opening up, places like um, Hooper Scruff and all the other places around, uh, we're being confronted now with um, opportunities and drinking and stuff that, you know, for a year has been basically put on hiatus. And her, her big sort of uh, moment of clarity for me was, you know, she goes through talking about that and says that the one thing you need to realize is that you are not responsible for how others react to your choice. Yeah. So you start to, you think it's like our responsibility to monitor, assuage and soothe others feelings in response to our choices. Um, and bend over backwards to frame the choice in a way that's almost inauthentic to us because we are so worried about what others will think or how they feel. So basically, it's... Yeah, you can't you manage know, everybody's feelings or reactions. People are going to feel how they're going to feel, and there's nothing that you yeah. can or could, can or should do to you know change So the trick the they for think. me is to, uh, ahead of the situation, I accept even before I it happens, I already accept whatever these people's reaction will be like, I'm okay with that even before I tell them something. Cause, and that, that took a lot of practice. It's hard because, you know, as a people pleaser, yes. Um, you, you know, you can see what's, people are thinking when you give them bad information and it's very hard not to be like, ah, you know, minimize or dismiss, you know, your feelings. Um, it's interesting. Interesting. Yeah. All right. So that was a long intro this week. 30, Are we done with the intro? 30 some odd minutes. Yeah. So. Maybe we won't. Uh, well. I don't know. Yeah. What, what about your son? So he went out last night with some friends and he yeah. hasn't done that in almost a year. And the, the friends that he went out with were friends that he was having. <laughs> he was having some, I don't know. Some drugs with... <laughs> so these are the, it's just a bad crowd, basically. I don't know if they're a bad crowd. I mean, you know, they're all good kids and they all come from good families, but um, who knows what the hell, you know, that goes on. But I, I will say whenever he hung out with this particular crew, there was always um, some strange shit that would, would go on. Like, yeah. I think he took a lot of mushrooms with them, you know, back when and so on. So, uh, mm-hmm. I, you know, but I was kind of, I just kind of, Said, okay, have fun, you know, be careful at all. And then uh, out he goes. So he was home by nine o'clock last night. Wow. He's tripping um, balls or. Well, just- he didn't make a run through uh, the downstairs area. Yeah. He just kind of scurried up to his room and closed the door. He did say hello to Aaron. And then um, when she called up to ask if he had fun, he did answer her in a 
pleasant manner. So who knows, right? Who knows? I mean, and then I saw him this morning and he seemed fine. He's so okay. tragedy narrowly averted. Or yeah, whatever. and so you don't set like a... Um an ultimatum type or a rule where you're like, if you, if I find out you're doing X, Y, Z, then you're kicked out of the house or you're grounded or, I mean. I mean, there would be no point because right. they're going to do it anyway. That's a parenting style. Yeah. I mean, that's, it is. every parent is not like that. I tried that with him and yeah. I, it had the exact opposite effect. Yeah. I, it's tricky. And, and some people will say, well, this is how you should always handle this. Same thing in recovery, but each child is different. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you maybe you don't really know best, but you're, you know, what you're doing. Like, I don't want to say, you know, best because I'm I don't feel like, blind, I know. Man. right, right. right. Well, this is our thing. first kid. You don't so, really know. You know, but oldest. You're the parent and, and you're setting the, uh, the atmosphere because you have to work with it and, uh, and you're setting it up. So, I mean, every kid is different. And so don't judge Mike for not punishing his child or I, I think the best drug testing him or something. I firmly believe that when they get to be about 15 or 16 or 10 in my son's case, they're, they're not going to listen to your advice. Uh, the best thing you can do is model behavior and, um, let them make their mistakes and hopefully learn from it. Yeah. I mean, if we lived somewhere else other than, um, you know, fucking Mayberry, uh, you know, it's hard to get into a lot of trouble here, like at his age. Yeah, it's true. So, you know, although I'm sure he could find it if he wanted to. Well, anyway, so having said all of that, um, today we're going to get to uh, this really, really amazing documentary um, called Crime of the Century. It's on HBO. Mm-hmm. You, if you have HBO Max, you can watch it. If you have HBO on Amazon Prime, you can like rent it or something. Uh, and it's all about, it's a new documentary taking a look at the opioid crisis that has devastated the country. Part one takes a look takes a look in particular to Purdue Farmer, the maker of OxyContin, a company owned by the Sackler family, and how it went about persuading doctors to lavishly prescribe the opioid to anyone needing it or not. The filmmakers in particular take a close look at the shady business practices and culture that prevails in the company to come up with any and all ideas or schemes to outright mislead the outside world, including doctors, about the addictive nature of this Opioid, and it was created uh, by Alex Gibney. Um, the other par- portion of this w- uh, worth noting is that Patrick Radden Keefe, who uh, wrote Empire of Pain, um, uh, he was in it a lot, and I think a lot of this documentary is based off of his research. Yeah, he was on uh, he was on Dopey a couple weeks ago, right? Yeah, he was on Dopey yeah. three hundred, and yeah. um, and I heard that, and I was like, this guy is good, yeah. just like in depth coherent, clear, you know, his intellect is so sharp. Well, his, uh, he was uniquely suited for, for, you know, taking a, a look at the opioid uh, crisis because of the reporting he did on the uh, Mexican drug cartels yeah. a few years ago. And he really took a different approach. He went into the whole, um, the business of um, h- how they were run as a business, yeah. you know, like a legit, I wouldn't say a legitimate business, but you know, how they did their marketing, how they did their, yeah. um, you know, the distribution and everything. And, um, it really is a business. It is a business. Mm-hmm. And it's just like the opioid crisis, uh, in this country, uh, was the result of, uh, actions by a particular business, the pharmaceutical industry, specifically, um, um, Purdue pharma. Right. Um, but it's interesting because the, the way the movie opens is, you know, we, it's a narrator saying how, um, 
we always call it the opioid crisis as if it just materialized out of thin air. But in actuality, it was a, a calculated thing. Um, you know, and it, it was... Um, you know, it's a classic example of, of a company who right, like manipulated the, people to make money and without caring about the consequences. Yeah, and, and the, the idea, I think this is just shining a light on, like, this isn't something that just happened to all of us. Um, the author and the movie, uh, the director, wanted to send the message that what if this wasn't just happenstance. Mm-hmm. Uh, so at the beginning of the movie, I wrote these down because I thought this would help set set the table for the discussion. They, you know, there's a scene where they have these like sayings and facts and it's on billboards. Right. Um, so here they are. First one is, since 2000, more than 500,000 Americans have died of opioid overdoses. Which is a, pretty amazing when you think that's about the same amount that have died of COVID. And yeah. for COVID, we completely shut the country down and didn't allow people to move around right. or do anything. But for 500,000 dead Americans of uh, yeah. of drug use, uh, you know, so, what you do know, we do? You know, nothing. Millions have become addicted. Every 25 minutes, a baby is born with opioid withdrawal. Um U.S. government estimates, sorry, <clears throat> U.S. government estimates that the cost of opioid abuse is over $1 trillion. And I assume that's in government, you know, support crime. of you know, crime. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how they calculate that. Um, and then one of them says, we called, we called it the opioid crisis. But a crisis is something that just happens. What if we discovered that the opioid crisis was caused by businesses seeking to profit from pain? Mm. And then finally, what if behind the opioid crisis was a spectacular crime? And then they go on to detail and, uh, you know, the rise of the Sacklers. Basically, they're blaming the Sacklers. Well, they, um, <clears throat> they took a look at the history of, of opium and yeah. the poppy. And I, I thought that was pretty interesting. Some of it I knew, some of it I didn't. Um, like laudanum. And- like laudanum or the fact that John Jacob Astor was was a huge opium dealer. Uh, and he, he was one of the, the, you know, the big guys who was sending all this stuff over to China and getting the, all the Chinese addicted to opium. And he was just, Astor is, is a famous uh, socialite, you know, millionaire, kind of like a Rockefeller, right? Yeah. Because so, his name's on buildings in New York City. And- so, I mean, you know, opium's, opium has been um, a substance that's been pervade by big companies for, you know, hundred hundred years. You know, yeah. it's this this thing with Purdue is not new, you're taking advantage of opium. But we used to take the stuff and we used to send it to uh, other countries and get other people's citizens addicted rather than stay here and do it at home, which is what seemed to be happening this time. Um, well, it's capitalism run amok with, I mean, uh, with no morals. I mean, let's not forget that heroin was invented by bare aspirin and marketed as a cough suppressant yeah. to children. Jeez, so. that's some cough. You know. <laughs> yeah, right. It's a terrible cough you got there. Um, you know, so, so, but, you know, because there was a history in this country where, that people knew that heroin was addictive, um, Big Pharma and and Purdue needed to get around that somehow and try and convince doctors to prescribe this stuff because doctors were very hesitant to prescribe it because they knew it was addictive. Yeah, I what they said was um, at the time where they like they had this epiphany and and the book and the documentary go into this a little bit. Who are the Sacklers and and that's right. also beyond interesting. Um, the father of uh, Arthur Sackler. Um, who was one of the uh, the main characters in this? Um, they came over and they, they're immigrants. I forget what country they're from. Um, I was hoping I would remember that, but uh, they were in Flatbush, Brooklyn. They were immigrant family, mm-hmm. um, and there were three brothers: uh, Arthur, 
Mortimer and Raymond. And uh, Arthur was the oldest. and They were, he, they were all doctors. They, they all went to medical beca- school. They all became doctors. And Arthur was actually seen as a patriarch, even though he was an older brother. Because he, he was older and he brought them along. You know, they followed him. They all became doctors. And then Arthur Sackler found himself at Creedmoor Mental Hospital right. in the 40s. And then he brought his brothers on board. And that's kind of where the genesis of uh, of OxyContin, you could say, or continuously released uh, opioids kind of was brought to bear. Well, the Sacklers at Creedmoor were involved in uh, the treatment of depression and other uh, mental conditions with electric convulsive therapy. And Arthur Sackler looked at that and saw that it was incredibly um, difficult and barbaric on the patients. So uh, he started to get the idea that, well, you know, pharmacology and and drugs were, were becoming like the way to treat mental illness. So he thought, you know, it would be helpful if you could, uh, he recognized that mental illness was, it was, sorry, it was just starting to be recognized that mental illness was really due to, in part, a chemical imbalance in the brain. So he figured if a chemical imbalance in the brain is what's causing mental illness, then maybe chemicals can be used to resolve mental illness. So he goes out and he buys himself a little uh, drug company in Brooklyn, yeah, which is this? Well, how did he buy a drug? I guess when you're making that much money in those days, it was a very just from sm- being a it doctor. was a very small company. It was like a, a neighborhood place, like that that happened to manufacture I don't know patent medicines, right, right, like certain right. kinds of drugs. But at the same time, he went out that he was, um, you know, working on building up Purdue Pharma. He went out and he bought himself um, it was an ad agency, an ad agency to uh, market the drugs. Yeah, right. Uh, I was looking for the name of that, but um, which is sure, super interesting. I mean, Arthur Sackler, all of these Sacklers are beyond interesting when in their in the reach of their curiosities and, mm-hmm. and passions. And the fact that here's this guy, he's a doctor, created more. He then buys a farm. I mean, he was just like a mover and a shaker, and he had all these great ideas and all of this uh, go get him. And he had the money and the interest, and all of that is so is very admirable. It started off very admirably. I think he wanted to help people. He wanted people to have a more humane way to treat their pain. In fact, what before all of these, um, like laudanum was developed and uh, MC Cotton, which was I think the early version of Oxycontin, yeah, MS, MS Cotton, right? Um, They were saying that in those days, uh, surgeons wanted no anesthesia because they thought in their, you know, idiotic, you know, early (laughs) medicine minds that this somehow helped the patient that they could feel the pain. Yeah. And and so, you know, the Sacklers decided, you know, that there's no pill that can't fix something like we can develop something and then they set out to develop like I think Valium. Yeah, they did. They developed Valium and they developed Librium and... um even back after those drugs were invented a few years afterwards, um, when they realized that people were starting to get addicted to them, um, they blamed the patients. And they, they said, you know, it, it's, not the, yeah. it's not the drug that causes the addiction. It's the people who are like, of, you know, don't have the moral fiber to resist. Right. Or who are using it in ways that it shouldn't be used. Right, like guns don't kill people, I do. Yeah. Um, the problem with all of this is... Um, that they pursued, the way they pursued marketing this pharmaceutical becomes so dark and becomes so Mm. underhanded. And it's just the extent to like, where did this turn evil? Was it the greed? I know. And the more we get into this, you'll see how, how they 
preyed upon people through doctors. And I think they saw that in society, um, doctors are deified. And I think they still are to some extent. Mm -hmm. Like it's almost a priest-like vocation, they called it. And if you could, and they had a hurdle to overcome, which was at the time morphine was, uh, had a bad rap, I guess you could say. It was seen as only end of life, People were on it. Well, all opiates because yeah. they're the you'll doctors get knew you'd get addicted, right? So they had to come up. They had to somehow convince doctors that this new opioid it wasn't like the other ones. And no, no, this one is safe. And the lengths to which they went to convince doctors of this, basically as a lie, and they knew it. They knew it. Um, and so doctors were the ones that really got duped. And then by proxy, all of their patients who look up to them and, you know, and so that's why this is so underhanded um, oh. for a number of reasons. Now, and they made billions. I just wanted to quickly comment, you know, if you don't realize, you, you think of a millionaire, right? And like, mm-hmm. oh, they're millionaires. No, these people have billions with a B of dollars. Um, and yeah, I think they're worth something like $14 billion, uh, estimated. And, uh, and that's not from a bunch of different products. Like they didn't really have a lot of successful other stuff that succeeded to this level. Well, the problem they had with Valium and Librium is they were accused of fraud in marketing that <laughs> and they, you know, vehemently denied, you know, that there was fraud involved, but, uh, you know, they had to move on from the, from those drugs, um, you know, and, it, well, and come and it up worked. with something else, and and you know, the 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 whole thing is really it's incredible because it's the fraud goes all the way back to to when they were first getting trying to get FDA approval for this uh, OxyContin in yes. 1994 uh, when they you know and usually getting FDA approval of a drug is an is an onerous process. It's extremely right? difficult, and everything that you do, every statement that you write has to be proven and. They had hired some guy whose I, I name I forget uh, as sort of like a, a fixer with the FDA to kind of help it along. And he, he interjected based on one- Curtis Wright. Curtis Wright. One crappy little study that was with inconclusive results. They somehow got this sentence put in uh, that said that, that, that their big claim to fame is that they could have a delayed release of the product into your bloodstream. And their, their and sentence was, the delayed release is believed to reduce the propensity for addiction. That is the some the, and the, the FDA one approved the that. FDA approved that. That's the big deal. And that's the one sentence that they trotted out to every single doctor in America that they were marketing this drug to, to say that the FDA wouldn't let us put it in right. there if it wasn't true. Exactly. So there's and they usually don't. So what the hell happened? Well, the FDA was asleep at the switch or manipulated. Well, right? what later came out in in a depositions and once they had discovery, which means that they got a tons of private emails and everything mm-hmm. like that. Uh, and this is in the documentary, they find a memo or a letter between Curtis Wright right. and um, I think one of the Sacklers, where essentially you could prove from this letter that they were consulting with Purdue on the approval, which right. is highly unusual and, and not not cool to say the very least. So, so they had way too much influence and putting this uh, this little bit in that market, the package insert, and they just launched off of that. You know, they, they took the credibility of the FDA and they used it against all of us. They basically had to sort of rewrite physicians' understanding of pain management, right? Um, 
you know, because you have you have a product with addictive potential, and you have a huge economic incentive to sell this thing, it's, which is the perfect storm for for misbehavior, right, and fraud. Um, you know, you have um, these pharma salesmen who would go into doctors' offices, sit down with the doctor, and the doctor would, you know, rightly say, you know. But people are going to get addicted to this, this stuff. And then they would trot out their sentence. The delayed release is believed to reduce the propensity for addiction and say it's really only like 1% and it's only the people that you don't use the drug the way it's prescribed uh, are the ones that become addicts. And this was completely not true. And they had done their own studies uh, to that basically proved that this was not true, that the, the drug was addictive and everyone knew it was addictive. Meanwhile, these salesmen are, are um, ah. going around and, and uh, they were cra- it was crazy. Yeah, one of them That's is, a huge part of the story is the, the sales force. Yeah. The, they interviewed one guy who worked for them uh, for three years from the late nineties into 2000. His name was Mark Ross. Yeah. And um, super interesting. Yeah. He made, um, what was he making the first year he worked there? He made $170,000 a year. And, and the year that he left, he was making $350,000 a year. And he, he basically said he'd go into doctor's offices, you take him out for steak dinners, you know, you, you, you know, fly him to conferences, whatever. And you'd, you'd overcome their objections, um, with bullshit, faulty studies <laughs> and fake science. And then the doctors would, um, start prescribing this stuff to their patients. And, you know, you, you think, well, how does that turn into an opioid crisis? Uh, you know, if, if people are taking this stuff as directed, well, um, you know, because it's an opiate, people would need more and more of it to have the same level of effect. And Purdue was saying, you know what, there's no upper limit to the amount that you can prescribe to people. They had yeah. one guy on there. Remember that guy? He was like an ex-heroin addict or something that, that had all this back pain. And he was like, there um hundreds of pills a day yeah he's like he's hundreds. like he's, he said it was like sitting down to a bowl of cheerios yeah. in the morning you know and he was eating like thousands of milligrams of this stuff so yeah they would trot out these people because if it's this extended release i mean one of the major breakthroughs for the sacklers was this the content which is continuous release so it was and you know and then people peeled it off and just shot it but so you you would take all of this opiates and it would slowly release into your system so people could quote unquote safely build up a blood level of opiates or morphine and uh that was should have killed them but because of the way it was released but you know they would end up just as addicted as if they were shooting it uh, and all of that, but they would show these people and say, "Look, docs, right. you thought that any more than forty milligrams would kill, and this guy's on sixteen hundred a day. Yeah. So maybe the way you thought was wrong. Maybe right. we're right. Maybe we've developed something that you couldn't even have imagined. Well, here it is. Well, miracle. And, and then the doctors would, um, you know, they'd have experience with some of their patients actually getting addicted to the drug and they would go back to the Purdue and Purdue said, well, that's not addiction. We call that pseudo pseudo addiction. I love that. Your patient may look like a drug addict, but he isn't really because he's just taking it for pain. pain. Right. So it's not addiction. Yeah. Right. As long as you're not partying it, I guess. Yeah. Forgetting the fact that if they stop taking it, it wouldn't just be pain that they'd be feeling. I mean, it's, it's horrible withdrawal symptoms. I thought it was interesting too that there was such a demand for the opiates uh, for for the oxycontin that Purdue couldn't fill the demand. So they actually went out and they started getting their their drugs from Johnson and Johnson, who um, went over to Tasmania and bought like two hundred 
acres or something in Tasmania or thousands of acres, I forget which, and then just planted poppies, Johnson and Johnson poppy fields in Tasmania and developed a whole new way to, um, to harvest them that was less labor intensive. And, um, you know, it was just sending stuff back over so Purdue could use it. So, you know, Johnson and Johnson with their, you know, no tears, baby shampoo is yes. not really the, uh, an innocent party here either. No, they, uh, they developed a process, if I remember correctly, where, you know, before they developed this process, it, you would take just, um, the poppy as like a fruit or a flower that would yeah. ooze stuff yeah, and you then you'd scrape it. it. Yeah. So what they figured out is that they could cut down the whole plant, with these giant machines mm-hmm. and process the entire plant. So it was much faster. You had much more medicine. It was crazy. So they basically were like the Henry Ford of drugs. Like they figured out how to yeah. make this stuff. Um, make, you the, know, make the hillbilly heroin, a as they call it. it. Um, you know, and you know, the documentary then kind of shifts into looking at sort of the human cost of this. Uh, they go into these small towns in Virginia, uh, one especially of interest, um, where uh, a local physician who um, was working there um, realized that uh, 9% of seventh graders had um, tried an opiate yeah. at some point, and 25% of 11th graders had. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's amazing how this trickle, talk about trickle down. Um, you you hear this a lot, trickle down economics, which it doesn't work that way. But for these pills, I mean, it's trickling down. You know, it starts with Purdue. Then it goes the salespeople who get addicted to the money, and then the doctors, and they get addicted to the money <laughs> and the patients. It's addiction and all the around. And people are addicted to the pills. And then the rehab industry is addicted to the rehab industry and wow. money. Yeah. And everybody is just in this cycle of need and addiction. And uh, it all started. They say the taproot of the opioid crisis is the Sackler family, and they started it. Um, and that's the essential point. Yeah, so there was one doctor in one of these little Virginia towns named Art Vanzi. Remember him from the first episode? Oh, I thought um, that was Lynn Webster. Who's Lynn Webster? Lynn Webster is that that doctor in Salt oh, Lake City who yes. was killing all his patients with uh, multiple prescriptions. For, right, yeah. right. So what was the other guy? So Art Vanzi, uh, he was a local doctor uh, in this small town of Virginia, and he basically started this one-man crusade against um, addiction, OxyContin. Uh, he would send emails to Purdue saying, hey, guys, I don't know if you're aware of this, but your your yeah. product is killing shitloads of people. Um and he was he would get these emails back like oh yes we're terribly concerned and yeah, it really sucks was, yeah, right right I know right um, <laughs> but then you know they Purdue goes out there and they you know they work Washington right they hire um, you know they give huge amounts of campaign contributions to Chris Dodd who's this Connecticut senator or was a Connecticut senator uh, who basically. Um, you know, stood up for them at um, congressional hearings after they've been hauled in to testify and tried to uh, minimize what uh, Dr. Vanzi was saying. Uh, and then they went out and hired Rudy Giuliani as a mm-hmm. as a bag man. Like he he would go around and uh, man, you know, he's do in PR. Some shit, man. Yeah, I mean, this was like right <laughs> after nine eleven when he was like um, the Mr. still Mayor. America's mayor yeah. and stuff. But um, you know, like you know, so they they really put the full court press on to try and. Uh, um, elude responsibility meanwhile there's federal prosecutors uh where's that guy doing 
Doing it down. Was that also in Virginia? Was a local federal prosecutor who de- was developing a huge case against a criminal case. Was this that Purdue. guy? And he does this to the tobacco company and all of that. No, that that's movie. A, that's a plaintiff's attorney. This right, is right. this is actually a U.S. attorney who puts together the case, mm-hmm. um, convenes a grand jury, files charges, and then um, Purdue gets to the Justice Department somehow and it ends up um, skating with. Um, Nothing more than like a yeah. slap on the wrist. They got to the judge. Yeah. Uh, you know, they, they weren't charged with much. A couple of executives had to pay a fine, right. a minimal fine that, that Purdue paid for them. The parking ticket. I yeah, it's a parking it. ticket, right? Yeah. Slap on the wrist. And so basically, you know, the, the, they were not called to account for anything that happened with uh, uh, OxyContin and were sort of free to go, go back and, and do it all over again, which they did. Uh and maybe I don't know. Maybe we'll get to part two at, uh, next week. But um, you know, when they change, just change the formulation and stuff, and you know, because their patent was about to expire, right? And they went out and made more money. Yeah, it, it gets even more more interesting. But I think um, why don't we end the part one there today? Um, good discussion. But there's there's a lot more. I feel like I feel like we can do a lot more. On this. Well, you, there's a lot of uh, pages on the Sackler's philanthropy in this outline. Did you want to go through, you know, which things you know, donated to which? It's museum? hard making these outlines. I did a little copy. And I know. Paste. I, you know, I I rag on you and I and I poke fun, <laughs> but really, you know, you're you're doing the yeoman's work yes, with these things. So it's God's you know, work. I, I appreciate that. Um, Look at all this stuff on your outline. Yeah, man. I was into. You know, I got this feeling like I was an investigative journalist. You know, mm-hmm. I was pretending to be Patrick Radden Keith, and I'm like <laughs> burning the midnight oil finding stuff out writing it down it was like fun one one cool thing that that i thought that um that dave brought out on dopey when in his interview with patrick radden keith when they were talking about the sacklers i think for the for the first time and i don't think patrick radden keith had even had even thought along these lines but dave said you know arthur sackler with his with his obsession for collecting art Mm -hmm. and donating money like was acting very much like a drug addict yeah you know that's and, right. It's a yeah. big cycle of addiction. Yeah, I thought that was a really astute observation. And, um, you know, it's just manifests in a different way, right? Because we know Gabor Mate talks all about process addictions. Yeah. You know, and how that's, you know, so, uh, like sort of a parallel track with substance abuse. Good old you know? Gabor. So the sack, the Sacklers, you know, Arthur Sackler. Gabor and the Sacks. going on. They should start a band, <laughs> Gabor and the Sacks. <laughs> coming at ya. All right, so that's anyway. uh, that's this week, and we will be right back with the rest of the show after these words. And we're back. Let me just say that very few stories that we've covered or very few things that we've talked about piss me off as much as this, much as the fact that there's this mega drug company that in pursuit of corporate profits basically did its level best to destroy this country um, by getting people addicted and then having the audacity to blame the people who got addicted for being addicted to a a substance that was known throughout history to be addictive, that they deliberately deceived people into saying was not addictive. They took deception and marketing to a new level, almost a performance art level. <laughs> yeah. How they, you know, the, the um, intellectual gymnastics that they had to perform in order to, to sell this. It was amazing. And you know what kills me even more? The fact that the recovery industry, the way it's set up right now, plays right into this because sure. 
it's there's a whole lot of self self blame that goes on in these situations, mm-hmm. you know, and and really, you know, so many of these people that became addicted to opiates were guys that they had back pain. They well, went, they went the, got they a root were, canal. Yeah, they went to their doctor. The doctor said, "Here, take these," because Purdue told them they weren't addictive and they could prescribe them for ordinary pain. These guys took them, and mm. then five years later, they're buying heroin in an alley somewhere because the doctor cut them off, and they became addicted through no fault of their own. Yeah. But you know, I suppose they still need to take searching and fearless moral inventories mm. and figure out how they to blame themselves. But I don't know. That's my particular, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, what do you call it? Stalking horse thing that I beat on. <laughs> I don't know what you call that. All right. Anyway, so with that, on that note, it's time for what? Recovering the news. So, recovery. <laughs> okay, just do it. Recovery in the news, motherfucker. <laughs> so, recovery in the news this week dovetails with our previous story quite nicely. Um, it was an article that was sent to us by a listener, uh, a great listener, whose first name is what? Grant. Grant. Thank you. Oh, Grant. I thought you were going to call him. G money smooth. G money smooth. Yeah, to sort of disguise. Well, his- I want him to know that we're t- he, we're yeah. thanking him, and you know he's really awesome reaching out to us and uh, helping out with this one. Grant has been uh, uh, great this week, um, trying to put us uh, in touch with an organization called Shatterproof. He's in the newsroom. You know, he's like one of those yeah. newsroom guys. Right. I should get one of those. Anyway. He's sending us a, a blast every week of stories that he thinks might be of interest uh, for recovering the news. And this is one of them that he sent us this week. Uh, he's also trying to get us in touch with Shatterproof, which is a 501c3 uh, nonprofit that um, uh, at, uh, it's geared towards educating about the opioid crisis and um, uh, what can be done you know, to prevent such a thing from happening again. Uh, anyway, so this week, the article is um, describing a class action Uh, that alleges the Salvation Army discriminates against opioid addicts undergoing doctor-prescribed treatments. So I don't know a heck of a lot about the Salvation Army other than the guys that... um you know, stand at the uh, outside the stores in Christmas, ringing the bell, and you put the money in the bucket, and it goes to yeah, alleviate homelessness. And you know, you can go. They they're have a thrift charity. Stores. They're a charity. They're a very religious-based charity, though. Yeah, extremely religious. Say that like it's a bad thing. Uh, well, in this case, it might be. Uh, the proposed class action alleges that the Salvation Army has put thousands each year at an increased risk of death, relapse, severe illness, and homelessness by denying those with opioid use disorder access to doctor-prescribed medically-assisted treatments. So, um, the plaintiff in this particular case, the representative plaintiff, if I want to split hairs, because class action is all people who are similarly situated, mm. uh, so... Uh, he alleged that he was among those who have been expelled from the Salvation Army's residential adult rehabilitation centers and programs due to opioid addiction and their participation in medically assisted treatment. So, uh, of course, we know what medically assisted treatment is because we've discussed it uh, here on the show. It's um, you know using something like uh, suboxone, suboxone, or methadone is right, a popular one, right, uh, under doctor supervision. Um, to get off of opiates. But the Salvation Army apparently believes that that's not real recovery. Mm. Uh, so you are not allowed to participate in the Salvation Army's rather extensive network of recovery programs if you are using medically assisted treatment. Oh. 
even though it's the medically recognized standard of care for treating opioid addiction. That's um, you know, some patients can treat opioid use through other methods like uh, cold turkey withdrawal and so forth. Most Is cold turkey actually treating it? Well, they call it treating. It's getting. It's it's taking the treatment. They used to call it taking the cure. Going to Lexington, taking hy- the cure. <laughs> William Burroughs. I'm thinking. Yeah, of, you know. hydrotherapy maybe. Yeah. Um, yeah. So um, these medications have been approved by the FDA for treating opioid dependence, but uh, the Salvation Army prohibits any medically assisted treatment at its more than 140 ARCs across the U.S. Are there for- any doctors working there? <laughs> like, who is it that's running these recovery centers? Do they have anybody with any training? Well, um, yeah, good question. Right, like, I don't know. I mean, I think it's like you, you have to pray the addiction away. Yeah, the only people who support that kind of insanity are like just, I know, 12 step insanity people who like don't believe in science. I mean, it, it really f- fits right into the Sackler model too, that, you know, the, the drug addiction is, is the, the, fault the fault of, of the addict and you can just pray away the addiction and everything should be fine. Why do you need medically assisted treatment for? I don't understand the, the resistance to it. Um, if you're trying to help someone like, I don't know. I, I just, I hate that. I hate, hate it when people who really don't have any, uh, you know, any standing intellectually uh, or professionally to make these kinds of decisions. Now, it's a private group. It is a 5013C, so they do reserve their right, but to, to deny anybody anything, right? Except that they're, they're in a position of power because of who they are, and, um, and it's irresponsible. People need treatment and they don't need to be treated like uh, naughty children who have, you know, got their hand in the cookie jar or something. I mean, you can, the fact that they're a private entity is one thing, but, you know, I mean, there are federal anti-discrimination laws. Um, right. They provide health care, housing and social services. They're subject to the requirements of the ADA and the Fair Housing Act. And yeah. to the extent that their policies run afoul of those, they can... You hold liable. That's that's the argument. I mean, don't they reserve the right to dole out their recovery however they sort of see fit and however they set it out? And they say, look, this is the Salvation Army recovery program. In this program, we don't do medically assisted treatment, period. I'm, I'm sure that's their argument, uh, whether or not that will... Um, if you want MAT, you go somewhere else. Well, we'll see. I mean, if they're participating, if they fit the whatever criteria of, of um, you know, uh, House care provider, social services provider. If they take any money from the feds, if if they engage with the feds in any meaningful way when they mm-hmm. provide these services, then they would be subject to federal law. And that's why you're the lawyer. Interesting. Well, I don't know. We'll see. I mean, there'll be a motion to dismiss, and we'll see where that goes. Anyway, I second that emotion to dismiss. Second that. that and that's all she the- wrote. Write something different at the end. Okay, yeah. Next is This Week in Weird. This week on This Week in Weird. (laughs) Sorry, I was trying to find it. Researchers spot Australia's Bigfoot with thermal imaging camera? It's a question. By Tim Binal, my favorite author. An intriguing series of thermal images taken in an Australian national park may show the country's version of Bigfoot, known as a Yowie. Yowie! Lurking in the wilderness. The eyebrow-raising photographs were reportedly captured by a team of researchers while on an expedition in the Springbrook National Park earlier this month. Seasoned 
Yowie Hunter, <laughs> Dean Harrison, who, who led the investigation, says that the specialized camera equipment used by the group picked up heat signatures that appear to correlate to a pair of nine-foot-tall creatures. Hmm. The suspected Yowies, he says, apparently moved silently as none of the researchers noticed the creatures lurking in the dark <laughs> nearby. Right. Quote, we wouldn't have known if anything was there if it wasn't for the thermal cameras, Harrison marveled. When the group later looked at their equipment, what their equipment had captured, he recalled, quote, we were ecstatic. This is probably the best footage so far in Australia. <laughs> Beyond that initial thermal sighting, the group also took a handful of additional images detailed in a lengthy video here in the article, which we will put in the show notes, which culminates with a photo showing a curious heat signature that appears to resemble a large bipedal creature hugging a tree. The tree hugger, a li- literal tree hugger. Yeah. Harrison, Harrison postulates that this is typical behavior for the Yowie. <laughs> <laughs> As uh, as the Bigfoot-like creature was ex- was likely attempting to hide from the researchers as they searched for it by hugging the tree. So, okay. <laughs> additionally, right. additionally, he asserted that at some point during the early morning hours while the team was inside the National Park, something placed four markers in the spot where his colleague had stood and captured the thermal images earlier. Since they were the only people in the remote location at the time, Harrison believes that it was the Yowie Acknowledging their presence, of course. Um, I love it's Bigfoot. Razor, you know, it's got to be Bigfoot. It's not just Bigfoot. It's Australia's Bigfoot. I like how they they make this distinction. It's a Bigfoot-like creature known as a Yowie. Kind of like, I mean, you have these cryptids. They're like it's different versions of Bigfoot. You have the Abominable Snowman, right. the Yowie, the Yeti, right. Sasquatch. Right. Um, but they're all probably cousins. It's uh, a common myth. Gigantopithecus. Is what they they think it is 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 the uh, no, binomial nomenclature seasoned yaoi hunter a seasoned yaoi hunter who hypothesizes that hugging the tree <laughs> is hiding behind the tree and therefore a common <laughs> behavioral characteristic of the yaoi it's typical behavior for a for the uh, bigfoot like yaoi seems like typical behavior for the yaoi hunter and that was weak and weird. All right, guys, another great show. Visit us at middleagesrecovery.com. <laughs> Tooting our own horn too much. <laughs> and check out our new merch page. Join the discussion and on our exclusive and private Facebook group. There's been a lot of action on there. I look forward to hearing Some from you guys. Some of it's quite um, insane. Well, one thing I'd just like to say <laughs> is Jeff D., um, our merch master, is back from, uh, back from his honeymoon. And if you join and get into our private Facebook page, you can see some of his uh, pictures from, um, from his honeymoon from the Dominican Republic. And you can see his lovely oh, cool. bride, who is gorgeous. Congratulations. Really? Yes. Yeah. Congratulations, Jeff. I also, unbeknownst to anyone but me, I made Jeff, or I invited him to be a moderator. Oh, great. Somebody um, should. Yeah, because I felt bad. He posted it, then a day or two went by, and I didn't see it, because I have so many uh, Facebook accounts, because I manage stuff, like I have a few <laughs> social, like I have a business. For, and among other reasons. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so thank you, Jeff. I hope you accept our moderatorship. We are dubbing <laughs> you moderator of the private should group. Should be some sort of knighthood involved. Yeah. Uh, but please, please uh, check out that group. You can see those pictures, and um, and talk to us if you if you want to, you don't have to check out the show notes. Mike puts a lot of work into it and uh, there really. are many hilarious Easter eggs to find. Um, <laughs> listen to us on, but you want to do the listen to us? 
No, you can. Listen to us on Podbean. I know, me too. <laughs> Apple Podcasts, Facebook, Instagram, Spotify, Amazon, YouTube, and Twitter. So tweet us a twat, you twit. Please go to your Apple Podcasts app or iTunes on your PC and write us a five-star review and we'll read it. And as we say, non proficiat perfectum. Progress, not perfection. See you next time. I was thinking about the bird. Okay. Be good. Be good. Be good. Be good.